Today we're going to talk about the South uh, and uh, the New South that developed uh, uh, after the uh, Civil War. And you may note uh, uh, in the syllabus I've put the words new uh, uh, in quotations, and you'll see why as I go through this lecture. Now, when we last saw the South, uh, it was 1877. Uh, the last northern troops were leaving the state capitals of Louisiana and South Carolina. And the South, at last, was be being given the chance it had been demanding for the last 12 years to rule itself, uh, to exercise states' rights, and, beginning in 1877, the South did just that. Or, so we have been told by countless historical texts over the years. And, of course, politically, that is true. In fact, the North's decision to leave the South alone politically led to the adoption by most southern states of segregationist Jim Crow policies that defined it until the 1960s. But politics is not the only way to examine the history of any region and not the only way to define it. What is as interesting as the South's political development after 1877 is its economic development. And although it gets much less attention from uh, historians than politics, uh, 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 and the development of the Jim Crow system in particular, which gets a tremendous amount of attention uh, from historians, uh, economics is probably just as important as politics. And it's fair to say that if you want to understand how the Jim Crow segregationist system developed, you must start with the economic development of the South between 1877 and 1900. Once again, you can learn a lot if you just follow the money, as the saying goes. Or to use another adage, uh, when looking at the southern economy after 1877, history repeats itself. Because if you remember my description of the pre-Civil War South as a colonial economy where it exported raw materials, sent raw materials out uh, uh, in exchange for manufactured goods that the South could not uh, uh, produce itself. Well, the South was still a colonial economy after the Civil War and, for our purposes today, after 1877, between 1877 and 1900. Except, of course, it was much poorer than it had been before the Civil War due to the devastation of the war uh, from which it still had not yet recovered. The South was still primarily agricultural between 1877 and 1900, still dependent on the North for capital, for money, and manufactured goods, still a producer of raw materials, staple crops like cotton and tobacco uh, for export. But there were a few differences from the situation before the Civil War, which I'm going to talk about in detail, all involving one of my favorite words when talking about history, irony. So here's the irony. First, while the South remained primarily agricultural after 1877 and only marginally industrialized, uh, only 6% of the Southern workforce was in manufacturing uh, as late as 1900, uh, it wasn't for lack of trying. 
because the 1880s and 1890s in the South marked a period of frenetic attempts by Southern leaders to industrialize their economy, you know, which they equated with modernization. Second, to the extent that the South did industrialize during this period, it became more and not less dependent on the North because of Northern ownership of much of the industry in the South. And finally, the third ironic economic development. When I describe the pre-Civil War South as a colonial economy uh, bound to agriculture as a way of life, I might also have mentioned that the South, in addition to staple crops like cotton and tobacco, in other words, crops you sell, crops you don't eat, the South also, before the Civil War, produced a great deal of food. It was, in fact, self-sufficient in this regard. It may have needed northern manufactured goods, but it didn't at least need northern food. It produced it itself. But after the Civil War, due to the peculiar turn that the southern economy took, the South couldn't feed itself. It needed to import food. And this, despite its attempt to modernize. So, let's examine southern economic development between 1877 and 1900 in the light of these ironies. By 1877, federal troops, as I mentioned, were out of the South, and southern governments had been redeemed, in their words. Uh, uh, that is, they had been taken over by white southern Democrats, who were victorious uh, after their 10-year-long battle with Republicans and the freedmen. And a period of relative political stability began in the South. Certainly, stability compared to the volatile period of Reconstruction. Although, Southern society was far from fair during this time, of course. It was stable. Now, this stability was attractive to Northern investors, who compared it unfavorably with the North itself, which, as we uh, discussed uh, last time, was going through a tumultuous period of class war and labor violence. So by comparison, the South looked like a promising place to uh, invest. Uh, 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 almost, it was almost like a third world nation uh, uh, from the viewpoint of northern investors. And uh, that's really the way a lot of northern investors spoke of the South, almost the way we would describe a third world nation. And adding to this image of southern stability uh, uh, were the new southern state constitutions, uh, which in contrast to the ones that were adopted during Reconstruction and which I talked about, uh, these new post-1877 state constitutions cut back on government social service spending, uh, uh, on uh, uh, taxes, on state debt, uh, making the economic climate much more attractive to northern investors. And in addition, the depression that had afflicted the North, beginning in 1873, which we talked about uh, after the Panic of 1873, uh, by the late 1870s had begun to ease, and Northern capital was finally freed up for investment. And the South, both government and individuals, welcomed Northern investment uh, enthusiastically. Unlike the North, the South offered a low-wage structure, uh, as well as a largely union-free environment. 
even today, a major reason why northern companies relocate to the south. And the 1880s saw a large uh, uh, growth in the south in four areas, in textiles, in tobacco, in railroads, and steel mills. First, textiles, which basically means cotton. Now, the South took great pleasure in stealing factories, textile factories, from where they had been originally located in New England. And a lot of factories relocated to the South uh, starting in the uh, 1880s. The number of employees uh, 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 in southern textile mills uh, uh, went up six times between 1880 and 1900. And these new mill owners, uh, or the owners of these new mills in the South, built company towns that attracted poor whites who had been forced off their land. Now, there were few blacks in these uh, factories, uh, these textile factories, since whites wouldn't work with blacks. Entire families would work in these mills, including children. But although the mills provided jobs, obviously, the South did not benefit from them as much as it could have economically, since mostly they were owned by Northerners. Then there was tobacco. Now, James Duke, who basically invented the tobacco industry, uh, uh, was a Southerner. Uh, uh, he invented the mass-produced cigarette, did, of course, our society a great favor by doing so. Uh, and he built the cigarette manufacturing uh, factories in Durham, North Carolina, which is where he was headquartered. Uh, uh, now, the tobacco industry, tobacco factories, were one of the few industries uh, in the South uh, that actually did employ blacks, although working in a tobacco factory is probably about the worst job you could possibly have in a factory. But once James Duke formed his American Tobacco Company in 1890 and shifted uh, the base of his operations north from North Carolina to New York City, uh, most of the financing and investing and profits, uh, once again, went not to the south but to the north. It's a similar story in railroads. Uh, uh, Southern railroad mileage doubled during the 1880s, helped by the fact that the South shifted its track gauge, the width of, uh, of, of, of the track rails, to correspond to those of the North, so now that trains could go both North and South. But once again, the investors and the owners of these railroads were largely from the North, and that's where the money went. And finally, an iron and steel manufacturing industry sprang up during the 1880s in northern Alabama around the city of Birmingham. By 1890, Birmingham was producing an impressive, uh, at least by comparison uh, to the pre-war South, an impressive 20% of the nation's iron supply. But once again, sending much of the profits out of the region to northern investors. So when we talk about the new South, and Southerners themselves talked this way in the 1880s and 1890s, we have to be careful not to be misled. Because while some things did change uh, in the South, at least there wasn't the resistance to industrialization that had uh, uh, so characterized the pre-war South, remember the writings of George Fitzhugh, uh, a great deal in the South did not change. Or a better way to put it might be the more things change, the more they remain the same. Or history repeats itself. Because the New South, the quote-unquote New South, even with all this investment, was still a predominantly agricultural society, 
Uh, it only had about 15% of the nation's manufacturing in 1900, uh, not all that much difference uh, from its percentage in uh, 1860, was still a predominantly rural society, even with the growth of industrial <coughs> cities like Birmingham and railroad cities like Atlanta. The South was only 11% urban in 1900, was still a low-wage society. Southern per capita income was only 40% of that of the rest of the nation, well into the 20th century. And the richest state in the South, Virginia, was still poorer than the poorest state in the rest of the Union, which was Kansas, in 1880. And finally, the South was still a capital-starved society. There were very few banks in the South, very few sources of finance and credit. There was just not a lot of money there. And so, despite its advances during the last two decades of the 19th century, the South still remained a colonial economy, still dependent on outsiders for jobs, for capital, for manufactured goods, and still a very poor society. And, what's more, unlike the pre-Civil War South, cotton was no longer king. And the South's agricultural system devastated by the Civil War, was not strong enough to carry the region as it had before the Civil War. And southern, agricultural, southern agriculture was itself in a colonial relationship to the North, just like southern industry. Southern agriculture during, uh, after the Civil War, in fact, was enmeshed in a vicious cycle of debt that uh, retarded its development until well into the 20th century. And the root of this cycle of debt, and the way to explain, perhaps, the entire disease structure of southern agriculture, and the analogy of the disease tree, I think, is appropriate here, is to look at the economic root of that tree, so to speak, the crop lean system that underlay southern agriculture during this period. Now, the crop lean system was a function of everything that was wrong with southern agriculture and southern, uh, 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 southern economics in general between 1865 and 1900. Now, since there were very few banks uh, in the post-war South, uh, credit was very hard to get for farmers. So a group of merchants who operated stores, sometimes at rural crossroads, sometimes uh, uh, in towns, uh, sprang up to fulfill this need for capital. Now, the stores were not needed for just money or money alone, but for farming implements, for supplies, uh, uh, and for food. Uh, these stores were almost a, uh, a, a combination of a grocery, a hardware store, and a bank. They obviously don't exist in this, in this form anymore. Uh, 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 well, maybe, maybe in Walmart. <laughs> now, these store merchants advanced credit uh, to the farmers at very high rates of interest because they didn't have any competition. And normally, the farmer would pledge his land as collateral for the uh, loan. This is usually what farmers did uh, in the North and elsewhere. But in the post-Civil War South, after 1865, this was impossible because land values were so low. They weren't really worth anything. So all a farmer could pledge in exchange for credit was his crop, the crop itself. And since that crop was now collateral and had to be worth as much as possible, you know, more collateral, more credit, 
It couldn't be a food crop. It had to be a cash crop, something that could fetch as high a price as possible. And, of course, this meant cotton, or in some areas uh, 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 in North Carolina, Virginia, uh, tobacco, but mostly cotton throughout the South. There was a problem, though, because so many farmers were growing cotton to pay off their merchants, the price began to drop. It dropped by half between uh, 1870 uh, uh, and, or the 1870s and the 1890s. Now, the fact that Great Britain had developed alternative sources for cotton uh, in its own colonies, Egypt and India, uh, during this time didn't help either. And, of course, if the price of cotton was low, the farmer had to grow more and more of it to pay off his debts. And if he grew more and more of it, the price dropped, of course, even further. And the farmer began to plant only cotton, which meant that he could not plant any food crops, which meant that he could not feed himself and had to buy more food from the merchant who was already advancing him money, which sent him, of course, even deeper into debt to that merchant. In addition, the farmer would exhaust the soil, so the cotton that he was growing was of a lower quality, bringing a lower price and further exacerbating his debt situation. So we see here uh, an example and an illustration of the irony that I spoke of earlier. The South, by the 1890s, could not feed itself. It had to import half of its food crop. It grew less corn, for example, in 1880 than it did in 1860. Now, for all its deficiencies, the pre-Civil War Southern economy could at least produce enough food to sustain its population. The post-war South couldn't even do this. And the result of this insidious crop lean system was a constant debt for the farmer, black and white farmers, incidentally. Most Southern farmers spent their entire lives in debt to merchants. They never got out of debt. It was almost like a form of serfdom. And, of course, uh, this also would mean, not surprisingly, that farmers would lose their land in large numbers. By 1880, one-third of white farmers were tenants, just renters of land, and that number would grow in the succeeding decades. Even the farmers who held on to their land lived in a form of debt peonage, of serfdom, of debt slavery. Black farmers, of course, fared even worse. By the beginning of the 20th century, 75% of black farmers were sharecroppers, which was an even shakier position uh, than a tenant, and obviously very little land ownership. And to make matters still worse in this very gloomy picture, the merchant in the South who advanced credit to the farmers was himself caught in a web of debt because he owned, owed money to companies known as factors in large southern cities like Richmond and Atlanta, who, advanced, adva who had advanced the merchant money. And these factors in the southern cities themselves were borrowing money from banks in the north. So they also were trapped by debt. So all in all, when you put it together, the southern economy, from top to bottom, from bottom to top, was a chain of debt, from the farmer, to the merchant, to the factor, to the bank. 
And at the end of that chain, or to be more accurate, at the top, jerking the chain, was the northern banker, the northern investor, the northern money man. If you think the South resents the North, even today, just because it lost the Civil War, think again. And so the southern economy was perhaps the most colonized part of its post-war situation as a whole. Now, the southern economy after the war did permit a landlord-merchant class, a class of landlords and merchants, to grow and prosper to some limited degree, to be sure. Uh, what often happened here is that the landlord, the owner of the land, uh, became the merchant, or vice versa. The merchant began to buy land and became a landlord, uh, creating a post-Civil War southern ruling elite that was composed both of old-line planters uh, 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 who had uh, uh, land but were not merchants, uh, and new businessmen who were merchants but later en ended up having to buy land. Uh, you know, these are people who started out as country store owners, you know, small-town store owners. Uh, so a combination of this landlord-merchant class uh, ruled the South economically after the Civil War. But this ruling class in the post-Civil War South really held very little true power, since uh, when we're talking about the economy, we're talking about the so-called golden rule. He who has the gold makes the rules. And the gold, so to speak, as well as the rules, came not from the South, but from the North. And thus, even the big men of the South were small men in this respect. And the really small men, the small farmers, the tenant farmers, the sharecroppers, both black and white, were trapped, trapped at the bottom of an agricultural and economic system that was frozen in time, stagnant, unable to change until after World War II. And this already bad economic situation was exacerbated uh, during the 1890s, as we move up to the 1890s, by a number of other factors. First, the insistence uh, by most Northerners on a high tariff. You remember the high McKinley tariff of 1890, uh, uh, a high tariff which, by definition, hurt a region like the South, which purchased manu manufactured goods from the outside. They had to pay more for them. Another exacerbating factor in the 1890s, the insistence uh, by most Northerners on hard money, the gold standard, which by definition hurt a region like the South, which was composed almost entirely not of creditors, but of debtors. If you're a debtor, you want to pay off your debts in inflated money. That's not the gold standard. And finally, the existence of monopolies and trusts, which we talked about earlier, which raised the prices that Southerners had to pay on everything from railroad freight rates to the food it now had to import because it couldn't grow. Now, put all of this together, and you have a recipe for disaster, for an angry and resentful population, ready to scapegoat, to blame, to lash out at someone and this is how the diseased southern economic system after the Civil War ultimately relates to and links up with the diseased southern political system through the ultimate scapegoating device, 
the so-called Jim Crow system of legalized segregation and disenfranchisement of blacks in the southern states, which took hold in the South during the 1890s and early 1900s. Now, the Jim Crow system consisted of a series of laws uh, prohibiting blacks from using the same public accommodations as whites. Now, what are public accommodations? Well, they're trains or buses, streetcars, uh, hotels and restaurants, uh, theaters, uh, even water fountains or bathrooms. Any public place where blacks and whites might tend to meet, might tend to interact. Now, the 14th Amendment, as well as the various civil rights laws passed by Congress, uh, ostensibly prohibited Jim Crow laws. But thanks to various Supreme Court decisions, uh, they became dead letters in the South. And in addition, the 15th Amendment, which supposedly prohibited denial of the right to vote based on race, was also effectively a dead letter in the South during the 1890s. And this was the second aspect of Jim Crow after the public accommodations laws, disenfranchisement of black voters. Now, to accomplish this without technically violating the 15th Amendment, uh, 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 southern states did not explicitly deny the right to vote uh, to blacks, but instead adopted uh, various dodges, various subterfuges. They required literacy tests to vote tests that many blacks failed. They instituted property qualifications to vote, uh, thus turning the clock back almost 100 years in America, because remember the property qualifications disappeared uh, 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 in the United States uh, in, the, in the 1820s and 1830s. So now they're doing property qualifications, qualifications that very few blacks could meet. They levied poll taxes on voters, taxes that blacks could not afford. And to ensure that no poor white voters got caught up in this net and got disenfranchised also, they instituted what were known as grandfather clauses, allowing you to vote even if you failed all the other qualifications that I mentioned, if your grandfather voted. In other words, if you were white, since virtually all of the grandfathers of southern blacks in the 1890s had been, of course, slaves. And true to form, the Supreme Court upheld all this nonsense in the 1898 case of Williams versus Mississippi, ruling that the 15th Amendment had not been violated because these restrictions uh, that I just mentioned were not specifically race-based. That is, they didn't specifically say that blacks could not vote directly. Now, of course, if blacks were not allowed to vote, they were unable to elect blacks to office. And thanks to these uh, disenfranchisement laws, uh, there were uh, virtually no black office holders at all in the South by the early 20th century, only a few decades after there had been hundreds of black office holders during Reconstruction. And just two years before the Williams case that I just mentioned, the Supreme Court had also upheld legalized segregation in public accommodations, the other aspect of the Jim Crow system from disenfranchisement in the infamous 1896 uh, uh, Plessy v. Ferguson case, one of the most important and far-reaching Supreme Court cases in history, and like 
Dred Scott and E.C. Knight, two cases that I've talked about earlier, one of the worst Supreme Court decisions in history. Plessy v. Ferguson was so important and so bad that we'll be spending a full class on it later in this class, later in this course. But as we know for our reading for today, or from our reading for today, the system of Jim Crow did not, as most people assume, follow directly and immediately from the end of Reconstruction in 1877, but instead only in the 1890s, a gap of about 15 years. In other words, there was a period of time after Reconstruction ended in the South, after 1877, where there was little formalized segregation. Public schools were segregated in the South, but that was about it, and no legal segregation. So during the 1880s, Blacks were still allowed to use public accommodations on an equal basis with whites. Uh, whatever segregation there was, was class segregation, uh, based, based on how much money you had, what, how much money you could afford. And blacks were still allowed to vote and to hold office. In fact, during the 1880s, blacks entered into a political alliance with upper-class whites in many southern states because upper-class whites needed blacks at this time. Since the business development policies that I talked about earlier in the South involving northern investment that these upper-class white southerners favored were anathema to lower-class southern whites. They didn't want that at all. They just felt that northern investment would just enslave them. And so upper-class whites uh, devised a a system between the late 1870s and the 1890s in which blacks would be socially and economically subordinate, but without legal segregation, and this is important, without the public humiliation that this would entail. And from the standpoint of the black community, while this wasn't much, this was certainly better than the alternative, which was legal and open segregation. And so they accepted this alliance with upper-class white Southerners as the better of two imperfect options. And this social system of subordination without the harsh rigidities of the Jim Crow system uh, survived into the 1890s before segregation became legalized. And thus, segregation was not an inevitable result of the end of Reconstruction in 1877, one that followed automatically and immediately, but only one of a number of outcomes, including what C. Van Woodward, uh, 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 who, whose writings we read for today, what Woodward calls a liberal alternative, equal rights for blacks, a road not taken, of course, <coughs> a radical alternative, according to uh, uh, Woodward, involving a class-based populist alliance between poor whites and poor blacks, which made some progress in the 1880s and 1890s, uh, but eventually died, and I'll have more to say about the populist movement later in the course, and what Woodward calls the conservative alternative, a more flexible system of subordination uh, 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 without segregation. Subordination, but not necessarily segregation. Uh, and this is actually what did happen in the 1880s. It's just what I just described involving the alliance between blacks and upper-class whites politically. And it's important to note that this system could have continued, avoiding Jim Crow altogether but we know that it did not. We know that 
in the 1890s, it hardened into a system of legal segregation. Why did this happen? Well, Woodward doesn't really tell us in the portion of the uh, book that we read for today, or his book that we read for, uh, uh, for today, which is uh, uh, the classic uh, A Strange Career of Jim Crow. It's a, a very, very influential book. Uh, but based on what I've already said to you today uh, about the Southern economic system uh, uh, after the Civil War, we may be able to hazard, hazard a guess as to why it happened in the 1890s. And this is where the Southern economic system and the Southern political system come together, where economics, following the money, so to speak, can tell us about politics and specifically about why Jim Crow began when it did. It was in the 1890s that the true inequities of the disease tree that was the southern economic system really hit home. The failure of industrialization to make the South prosperous and independent. The crushing weight of debt on a whole society, top to bottom. The stagnation the hopelessness, the feeling that there was no way out. And out of that despair, out of that feeling of absolute powerlessness in the South, came a desire to explain the unexplainable through scapegoating, a normal, if distressing, human emotion. Through disenfranchising and segregating the weakest portion of the population, African-Americans, illogical and as self-defeating as this was, both the economic and political despair of a colonial, poverty-stricken, war-ravaged, debt-ridden Southern society came together, came to a head. And it came to head, you know, a head in a series of Jim Crow laws that, in the final irony of my lecture, served only to lock Southern society even deeper and more irrevocably into the very dependence, poverty, and isolation that the South wished to escape. It would take until our own lifetimes, generations later, for the South finally to escape the tragedy of its past, some of it self-imposed, some of it imposed from without, and truly to become what we can call today the New South without the quotation marks. <laughs>